0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This
1: is CNN Tonight. I'm Jim Shuto. As Anderson said, live from Lviv, Ukraine, along with my good friend Laura Coates, back in the U.S., And there is tonight very dire news out of the besieged city of Mariupol in the south of this country. Hundreds of Ukrainian civilians, including women and children, as well as soldiers, surrounded by Russian forces and fearing for their lives. A Ukrainian Marine commander is now pleading with the world for help, calling for an international evacuation effort there. He says, and I'm quoting, it may be his very last statement because Ukrainian forces have, in his words, a few days or even a few hours left there. He said, we are surrounded. You're about to see that desperate plea in just a moment. We do know there is a, quote, unprecedented effort by the U.S. as we speak to race yet more weapons to Ukraine in a critical new phase of the Russian invasion. And we're learning tonight that President Biden is likely to announce another $800 $800 million in security assistance, that means weapons, for Ukraine soon, to add to some $800 million he approved just last week. This as Russia intensifies and expands its assault on the Donbas region in the eastern part of this country.
2: Jim, I know Russia hasn't agreed to open any humanitarian quarters for quite some time, which is, of course, leaving so many civilians still trapped by this bombardment. So what's President Zelensky's take tonight? Quote, forever the Russian army will be written in history as the most barbaric and inhumane army in the world. And this hour, we're also going to address the major fallout over a very different kind of fight for freedom. The freedom to no longer mask up on public transportation after a federal judge has struck down the CDC's mandate just yesterday. It's been very welcome news for many, but very worrisome news for others as this pandemic is clearly not over. Hundreds are still dying from COVID every day. So should Americans keep masking up, mandate or not? You're going to hear President Biden's answer to that ahead. But first, let's turn back to this last stand of sorts for Mariupol. Jim, what else do we know about how long Ukrainian forces can really hold up and hold on to that steel plant?
1: You know, the steel plant has become an unlikely lifeboat for for these people here. And it is soldiers, the last offenders of this city, but it's civilians, perhaps a thousand civilians. And we've seen pictures of them there uh, taking refuge in in the basement of this steel plant. Women and children, they're running out of food. So the commander of Ukraine's 36th uh, Separate Marine Brigade, who is hunkering down there as well, he warned today Russian forces are advancing. They are bombing and they don't have much time left. Have a listen.
3: Це наше звернення до світу. Це може бути нашим останнім зверненням. В нас, можливо, залишились лічені дні або години. Групування противника в десятки разів перебільшує нас. вони мають панування у повітрі, в артилерії, в групуваннях, які діють на суходолі технікою та танками. Ми ведемо оборону на одному об'єкті, на заводі, де знаходяться військові маріупольського гарнізону та цивільні особи, які потрапили в пастку війни. Ми звертаємось до світових лідерів допомогти нам. Ми звертаємось в прохання засувати в нас процедуру «Екстракшн» та вивести нас на території третьої держави – маріупольський гарнизон військових. We have more than 500
1: You can see in his eyes, Laura, that this is a plea for his life and the lives of the other people there taking shelter. And I have to say, having covered this war for weeks now, this is not happening in the dark, right? I mean, we're seeing these assaults often on civilians. Right before our eyes, and here is yet one more case of this. And frankly, tonight, the fate of those people very much hangs in the balance.
2: I mean, the desperation just thinking about that from a human element we talk about the humanitarian crisis of those who are yeah. refugees going to different borders, but the feeling of being surrounded and actually saying you don't know how much time you have left, talking about the wounded, a plea to get them to safety. I mean, President Biden held another call with U.S. allies today. Jim, how are those conversations having an impact on the ground where you are? I mean, obviously, the appeal that went out is going to the Western allies, Mm -hmm. to the U.S. and beyond.
1: It's having an effect in terms of getting more weapons to the Ukrainian military, and we see that tonight. There was nearly a billion dollars in new U.S. aid last week, and here we are just a few days later, and you know another nearly a billion dollar tranche of weapons. And those are wepo- these are real, hardcore weapons going out to the Ukrainians fighting on those front lines here. But but the truth is, as that commander said, Russian forces greatly outnumber Ukrainian forces, so they're still able to do a tremendous amount of damage. And by the way, as they do it. They're deliberately targeting civilians. Uh, earlier today, I spoke to the U.N. Uh, to the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and, and I said, "Listen, you know, I, I get the stands that you are trying to make there and the weapons support that the U.S. is sending, but the fact is, civilians are still dying here in numbers. What's the relevance, for instance, of a body like the U.N. today? Have a listen to what she had to say. If the U.N. cannot stop a war in the 21st century in which we're witnessing." war crimes perhaps every day here. If it cannot do that, what is the U.S. U.N.'s true influence uh, today? Uh,
4: That's an extraordinarily important
2: question, and it's one that we grapple with every single day at the United Nations. But we do have the power. We have the power to blunt uh, the Russian veto. We have the power to isolate Russia, which we have successfully done over the course of this war. We have isolated them in the Security Council and, as you know, in the General Assembly.
1: Isolate, but not yet stop. That, that is the hard fact of this war uh, as we continue to watch it play out. Uh, I'm joined now by Arseniy Yatsenyuk. He's the former prime minister of Ukraine. Sir, thanks so much for joining us tonight.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: I wonder what your reaction is to hear the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. there saying the U.S., its allies, have been successful in isolating Russia. And that's true, largely, although Russia certainly has its allies. Uh, But given the brutality of what we're seeing here, is the world failing? Is the
5: U.S. failing to stop this? Well, here is the thing. Uh, Let's be frank. Um, The post-Second World War order, is outdated, period. Mm. So what is needed right now? We need to upgrade and actually to craft a new kind of humane, freedom-like uh, global order. Uh, I'm not sure that the UN is really effective right now, e- even more, let me avoid all this political correctiveness. Uh, the UN is a very good body, but which is not effective one, they can't stop massacres They can bring to justice those who committed crimes against humanity. They can bring to justice Putin, who is a Nazi style leader. In terms of the US, this is the second part of your question. I want to be very clear. The US is a flagship. who decided to fight for freedom in the world and support Ukrainian people. And the US administration managed to solidify and actually to uh, make joint efforts of the European Union, of the entire G7 and the free world uh, to join our ranks in order to help Ukraine. This is unprecedented. Let me be very clear, unprecedented pace and unprecedented endeavors made by the US and the free world. But Russia is a very um, big country with nukes, uh, which actually outnumbers us. So we always, we are, we are very clear asking you, please supply more, ratchet up sanctions, isolate Russia, make Russia to pay and elaborate and craft a new mechanism how to bring to justice those responsible, starting with Putin and ending with every single crony of, of President Putin.
1: As you watch what's unfolding in Mariupol right now, Yes, you have U.S. aid coming in, aid from NATO allies. You you have investigations, at least, underway to prosecute war crimes at some point in the future. But the trouble is, we're seeing evidence of war crimes every day here, right? I mean, you have a thousand people or more who might die tonight, right, if the Russians advance on that steel plant uh, in Mariupol. Do you need to see something to stop these acts as they're happening, right, as opposed to punish those who carry them out, if, if they're still able to carry them out?
5: Well, a, a big drama and tragedy is unfolding. Uh, those who defend Mariupol, I mean, Azov Battalion and Ukrainian Marines, they are very courageous people. This is a tenacious resistance, and uh, you know they are fighting like hell. So what we have on the table, we have on the table a few options. The key option is to consolidate uh, the Western world and to consolidate the free world and to press in Russia to provide a humanitarian corridor for Ukrainian defenders. Another option is to duplicate Mariupol and actually to, in this way, to help Ukrainian uh, fighters to withstand. Uh, I still believe that there is a chance to save every single Ukrainian soldier men and women in uniform fighting in Mariupol, and to save innocent people who are sheltering in in this, uh, one of the biggest uh, steel plants in Ukraine. So I hope and I pray for this.
1: Joe Biden says tonight he does not know if he himself will visit Ukraine. As you know, the leader of the UK has come here many uh, NATO allies in the East, their leaders have come, and, and many countries are returning their diplomats to Ukraine, a step that the U.S. has not taken yet. Would it mean something to you, to Ukrainians, for a high-level U.S. official, perhaps up to the president, to visit, and particularly for the U.S. as well, to return its diplomats to the country?
5: The time will come when the president of the United States will pay the visit to Ukraine, and the time will come when the U.S. embassy will be back in Kiev, no doubt. What counts for me right now and what counts for Ukraine is a very speedy and fast-track delivery of little defensive and offensive weapon. Strong sanctions, isolation of Russia, unity in the European Union. So it's not just about visits. Visits it's very important. It, uh, uh, what I would focus on, on the r- real deliverables, tangible results. And we do feel that the West already realized that this Nazi-style ru- uh, ruler Putin is a threat to the free world. We as Ukraine, we are fighting for our homeland. We are fighting for our country, but we are fighting for your freedom, for your security and for actually for the entire free world.
1: It's a consistent message we hear from Ukrainian officials. I, I do want to ask you as the war shifts its focus, and by the way, I always remind people that. The war in eastern Ukraine began some eight years ago. It's not new, but it's going to be bigger now. There's a greater concentration of Russian forces, weapons, etc., and now Ukrainian forces as well. Is that a fight Ukraine can win?
5: I am confident that this fight will be win by Ukrainians. So this is the fight of the free world of, and of Ukraine. Ukrainian victory is feasible, Ukrainian victory is real one. And there is a very clear-cut, I, I won't say it is a playbook, but, but a, a recipe or, or an action plan how to support Ukraine to win these five Weapon, mm-hmm. sanctions, Russian isolation, energy embargo, and development and reconstruction plan for Ukraine actually five points, which are on the table.
1: We'll be watching those steps closely to see if they continue. Arseniy Yatsunyuk, former Ukrainian Prime Minister, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, sir. Well, this country, still at war every day, has no time to properly mourn the dead. Each day, bodies are being found particularly in Bucha, the site of those mass graves we've reported on extensively. As a result, some morgues are now struggling to handle, to identify the dead. Phil Black live from Kyiv on the tragedy within this nightmare when we return. As if Putin's denials of the atrocities we have witnessed in Bucha are not enough, he's been even more galling. This week, he awarded honors to the Army brigade accused of committing the massacres there. In a signed letter, he bestowed the unit the honorary title of Guards and praised what he called, quote, great heroism and courage. Great heroism and courage. But the troops who did this, they're not heroes. They are not courageous. The disturbing images speak for themselves. The mass graves there are full of murdered civilians. Streets strewn with the bodies of civilians killed by Russian forces. CNN's Phil Black joins me now from the capital, Kiev. Phil, it's, it's been just over two weeks now since Russian forces retreated from the area. But people there are still struggling to recover, even take the step of identifying bodies.
6: Yeah, that's right, Jim. Yeah, the, the killing of so many people behind Russian lines created so much pain, but also a massive logistical problem. There are so many bodies and each needs to be recovered, accounted for, identified, examined, a cause of death established, and then ultimately returned to the right grieving family. There is a huge operation underway to ensure all of that happens as efficiently and respectfully as possible. But even still, there are families left waiting, enduring painful uncertainty. Take a look. Morgues aren't supposed to be busy, or so over capacity they need a team of volunteers to move bodies around and large mobile refrigerators to accommodate them. This is one of seven sites in and around Kiev working to cope with the tide of death left behind by Russia's retreating forces. Are there still more bodies coming? Uh, Coming, yes. Lots? Uh, Lots. Lots. Every day at morning. Andrey Bilyakov normally teaches forensic medicine. Now he's a full-time volunteer performing endless autopsies. But how many murders are you saying? The
4: murders, uh, I think, uh, near to 40% is exactly murder.
6: By his definition, that means 30% of the people in these bags have deliberate gunshot wounds to the head. We witness a continuous cycle shuffling bodies from vehicles to storage to autopsy to storage and ultimately preparation for burial. Usually it will be their second. Most have been exhumed from temporary graves. Families buy new clothes for those they've lost as a gesture of love and respect. But they often go unworn. They can only be laid inside the coffin. The condition of the bodies means dressing them is impossible. Among those lying here, waiting to be collected, is Roman Lipa. His family says he was killed when munitions struck his home in a small remote village. Roman's wife, Victoria, survived, only to endure a form of hell. Intense fighting meant she couldn't escape the house. Victoria's brother, Ihor, says, my sister had to step over her husband's body for two weeks. She had to go through it to get to food or water. The room is still covered in blood. She is very bad now, very bad. I don't know how she will live with this loss. Others who grieve are living through a different form of hell. They can't find the body of the person they love. Vladimir is searching for his brother Leonid. He shows us where he was shot and killed, where he was buried in a shallow, makeshift grave before officials exhumed the body and took it away. So Volodymyr has taken leave from active duty to travel through devastated communities, going from morgue to morgue, but no one can help. Eventually, he's directed to a police office with a central list of the dead. He's told his brother probably hasn't been processed yet. Volodymyr must return to the war. He doesn't know when he'll be able to come back, even if Leonid's body is found. It hurts a lot, he says. It hurts a lot, but we don't give up. Russia has left so much death behind in areas near Kiev. Some people must wait their turn to grieve. Jim, in these morgues, you also see uh, prosecutors uh, working, uh, investigating, recording individual crimes determined, they say, to ensure that somebody is held accountable. But they also know the reality. Russia's just not going to hand people over. Uh, Vladimir Putin has essentially shown that, highlighted that by awarding uh, a specific military unit. This is the 64th uh, separate Guards Motor Rifle b- Brigade. Uh, this is a unit that the Ukrainian government says is responsible specifically for atrocities committed in Bucha. But according to this award, this is a, a unit that is deserving of uh, commendation for courage and bravery and uh, astute, bold action here in Ukraine. These are soldiers that in Ukraine are considered war crimes, or war criminals, I should say, but in Russia are being celebrated mm-hmm. as heroes, Jim.
1: Phil, so it is heartbreaking to watch that story. It's a fact of war. It had to be extremely difficult for you and your team to report that story, given what you were witnessing up close. But it's important to put it on the record. Thank you. We will have more on the war in Ukraine in just a moment. But first, to a new normal. Back in America, a new mask optional country with the CDC's mandate now struck down. But for how long? And has this mandate been lifted too soon? Laura, takes that up next.
2: We're learning tonight that the Biden administration was left, well, scrambling after they were apparently caught off guard yesterday when a federal court ruled against its mask mandate for public travel. That's according to sources familiar with the discussions who spoke to CNN. Now, today, the DOJ announced that it would appeal that ruling – if, and that's a big if, if the CDC determines that a mandate is in fact still necessary. But President Biden is already weighing in on whether Americans should still mask up while flying.
0: Mr. President, should people
2: continue to wear masks on planes? That's up to them.
0: Are you gonna like to appeal the ruling uh, or the
1: ruling that the judge made striking down the mandate? I haven't spoken to the CDC yet.
2: Quite a change. So what could that mean for the future of the mask mandate? Let's discuss now with Dr. Zeke Emanuel, former member of the Biden Transitions COVID Advisory Board. Dr. Emanuel, I'm glad that you're here. I think a lot of people have the question when the CDC first announced they're going to extend this particular mandate a few more weeks, what was the justification at that point in time to have that extension in the first place?
7: Well, we're in the Omicron BA2 upswing, where we see uh, extensive numbers of cases in New England, Colorado, and other parts of the country. Uh, and you want to be sure that we're not facing a real surge all throughout the country before you lift the mass mandate. That would seem counterproductive to uh, combating transmission of the virus.
2: I do see the chart you're talking about, and of course, there is that notion, and we know that we're still very much in it, and frankly, there's still a Greek alphabet to go in terms of these variants, and we don't know what's going to happen. But at the same time, most people are looking and saying, well, listen, the rest of the country is really opened up. You've got restaurants and ball games and the like. And so there is this juxtaposition, doctor, from what's happening outside to what's happening on planes and public transportation. So I'm wondering, in terms of the idea of lifting the mandates given that number, is it that it's just grossly premature to do so? Or is it that when it comes to flying and the sustained contact in particular, that's when there has to still be the mandate.
7: Well, I think both are true. I think we, uh, and I've on record as saying we lifted the mandate too early when things were improving but not improved enough. And second, you're absolutely right. When you have a high occupancy area, even with good ventilation, but you're gonna be exposed to someone for a prolonged period of time, that's when transmission happens. If someone's not wearing a mask, even if you're wearing a very high quality mask like this, an N95 Mask. They're infected, you have about an hour, hour and 15 minutes of protection from them. On the other hand, if both of you are wearing good N95 masks, that goes up to six hours and 15 minutes. That's good enough for a cross country flight. Um, And that's, I think, the important difference. Uh, If you're prolonged, whether on a train or a plane, uh, exposure to someone who's not wearing a mask and they're infected, Uh, That spells bad news, even if you're wearing a mask.
2: Well, you know, interestingly enough, the president of the United States, you just heard him say when asked whether people should still wear masks, he said it's up to them. And of course, that makes me think about a common conversation that was happening throughout the pandemic about on whose responsibility it is, who is the onus fall on to have to wear that mask. And many would say, well, look, at this point in time, it's those who are, have a suppressed immune system in some way or compromised. And so those that require additional protection should be the ones to wear it, but to have a blanket rule on, on, on board aircrafts and the like, that's a bridge too far without a logical justification. I know that the judge was talking about this very issue, saying, listen— I know there's a notice and comment period under the APA to be able to have a rule promulgated, having to have the notice, but also you have to link it to why the mandate is still in effect right now. Do you think that there is a disconnect in terms of what the CDC has been able to convey to the public about why it's essential at this point in time for the onus to be shared among those who are both compromised and those who have really a a medical altruism that must be enforced?
7: Well, first of all, as I noted, uh, it's not, I can't just protect myself. If Mm -hmm. both of us wearing masks, the chances that an infection passes from a positive person to someone who isn't infected and say immune compromised goes, is prolonged, it's six hours. If only one person, the receiving person, the immunocompromised person is wearing a mask and the other person isn't and they're infected, that drops down to about one hour. That's a huge difference. We're all in this together and my uh, uh, my being infected can af- affect someone else. But I do think you're right in the other point, which is that the CDC has not laid out clear guidelines that the American public understands for when we should lift the mask mandate and when it should go back on. And I think that's what we're struggling with. We're also struggling with the fact that we're all damn exhausted from this thing and we want it to be behind us. What we want does not necessarily match with reality. And that's the problem we have.
2: Well, that's part of the contemplation about whether to appeal this decision as well. We'll, stay, we'll keep tuned in to that very point. Thank you, Dr. Zeke Emanuel. I want to get back to Jim. Thank you. I want to get back to Jim in Ukraine. Jim?
1: Thanks, Laura. Britain, Canada, New Zealand, just some of the countries taking new economic measures today to squeeze Russia. But up next, I'm going to speak to a former advisor to Vladimir Putin himself. He has one step, he believes, that could stop the war within a month. That's coming up. Even as multiple sources tell CNN tonight that the U.S. is preparing another $800 million in weapons for the Ukrainian military, the number that may matter more to Vladimir Putin is $38 billion. The EU has spent at least that much on Russian energy just since the war began. My next guest knows the impact the money will have on the mind of the Russian leader. Andrei Ilarionov is Putin's former chief economic advisor. Andre, good to have you on tonight.
4: Uh, Good evening. Nice to be with you.
1: You worked with Vladimir Putin at a time, back in the 2000s, when he seemed to be interested in moving closer to the West. What have you seen changed in him since then that has led to where we are right now?
4: Uh, The most serious evolution, or maybe better to say devolution of his attitude, has happened between year 2003 and year 2007, when he has changed his mind from pretty pro-Western political leader, especially for the Russian situation, to very open anti-Western leader. That happened in this period of time. We can discuss what exactly, uh, what exact factors did contribute to these of mind. I would say probably one of these was Iraq war, revolutions in uh, Georgia and Ukraine, and also exposition to new ideas that he never heard uh, before. But some, we need to say some Americans told him these wrong ideas that he took as a weapon and started to use from year 2007. What ideas exactly? The idea of against NATO, against uh, uh, membership of Georgia and Ukraine in NATO, NATO. Uh, the idea is to bring NATO back to 1997 division line in Europe, an idea of superpowers that are having spheres of privileged interests. In the beginning of year 2000, Putin did not have such ideas but he has acquired those ideas yeah. around year two thousand five to year two thousand seven.
1: Well, we're seeing those ideas in action now on the ground in Ukraine with ruthless effects. What would make a difference for him? What what would actually stop him? He's been under sanction for years. Uh, is there
4: one sanction that would make a difference? Um. In this particular situation, I would uh, propose something that I would call a smart embargo on Russian energy. What do we have right now? We have three serious problems at the same time. First of all, uh, Putin does receive about one billion US dollars per day as a result of export of Russian gas and oil. That is money that is financing Putin's war machine. Second, this Putin's war machine is making a lot of damage. It made enormous damage to Ukraine, which is measured by hundreds of billion dollars on the Ukrainian territory. And those Ukraine does need money to restore and repair all these damages. And third, we need to give some time to Europe to adjust to new situation where Europe would be able to avoid input a consumption of Russian energy. What would be the golden instruments to solve this puzzle? The idea is to introduce the so-called smart embargo. What does it mean? It means introduction of the escrow accounts for which all proceeds from Russian oil and gas will be accumulated, but will not be given back to Putin. These money can be used until uh, the end of the war, until withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine for financing, reparation, restoration, rehabilitation of Ukraine. And it gives time for, you, for Europe to adjust to new situation without Russian energy. We can think that uh, if some portion of this money, let's say 50%, will be... Mm -hmm. going to Ukraine, it will be substantial support for Ukrainian efforts to resist aggression and to normalize life in Ukrainian cities and villages.
1: There's been a lot of speculation in the West as to whether Putin can survive this at home, set aside the Russian public, but just inside the Kremlin. You worked for Putin. Is there any potential for someone challenging his leadership, the military? Someone else? Is that realistic?
4: I think we need to come to a very clear idea that with all problems with Putin personally, the most serious problem is with the Putin's political regime. And that is why we need to absolutely serious that with such a political regime, with Putin or without Putin, Russia will remain threat to international peace and security. So that is why we need to think about not only leave with Russia without Putin, but without Putin's political regime. No matter how long and how difficult it will be, but that should be a goal for international community. World cannot Mm -hmm. live in peace and security if we have such an aggressor who's attacking neighboring countries and not only neighboring countries, killing yeah. hundreds of thousands of people in Chechnya, in Georgia, yes. in Ukraine, in Syria, in Africa, around the world.
1: Mm. Yeah. We're witnessing it every day. Andre Ilarionov, thanks so much for giving us your insight. Thank you. And I'll be back live from Ukraine in just a few minutes. But up next, new controversy about what exactly to teach American children. Florida has rejected an historic number of textbooks over claims of critical race theory, Common Core, and more. Laura will speak to a teacher who fears what this means for his students. That's coming up.
2: So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is now taking his culture war to a new level, this time targeting textbooks. The state is rejecting 41% of math textbooks for next year's curriculum. That's the highest percentage in Florida's entire history. Officials are claiming that, here's a quote, that they are rejecting publishers' attempts to indoctrinate students with prohibited topics like Common Core standards, critical race theory, and social-emotional learning. But here's the catch— even as the department touts its own transparency, it still hasn't told people which textbooks are actually being rejected, nor has it offered any examples of offending content within Florida. Joining me now is Octavio Hernandez, a middle school algebra teacher in Polk County, Florida. Octavio, thank you for being here. As we note, there seems to be a profound lack of transparency in identifying the particular books that have been withheld from the curriculum. But in addition to talking about critical race theory and conversations about social-emotional learning, SEL, it seems that's the crux of the issue that has them pointing fingers. I'm wondering in terms of SEL, first of all, What exactly is that for people to understand, and what role has that played in a math curriculum to date?
8: Okay, well, the SEL is basically uh, skills that are necessary to uh, manage emotions for these students. I mean, as you and I know, middle schoolers are going through a lot of hormonal changes, and matter of fact, almost any age um, school uh, student is going to have through some emotional changes, and they don't know how to manage it. And you and I, Laura, both can admit that these last two years have been perhaps the worst. we have ever experienced in a hundred years. And these children are now going through a war. Uh, We're going through a pandemic. And now we have a governor that's using them as pawns in his political ideology. I mean, he's being cruel to them. I mean, these students have gone through so much. And now you're gonna use um, a a new law that you created to manage what is being taught in the classrooms and a subject like math, that's just unheard of.
2: Well, Octavio, of course, he would argue that it's cruel to try to, in addition to all you just addressed, to try to essentially pile on and use math as a vehicle to have conversations that are not simply about getting the answer. In fact, one of the things he said, and here is how he framed it, there's a well, there's a soundbite from DeSantis. Let's let's play it.
0: You do have things like social and emotional learning and some of the other things that are more political in there. Math is about getting the right answer, and we want kids to learn to think so they get the right answer. It's not about how you feel about the problem.
2: What's your reaction to that? Is it just about getting the answer?
0: uh, Math is about critical
8: thinking. Um, The thing I love about math, especially algebra, is you have to teach students how to think, how to use... um, their knowledge of the real world to solve some of these real world problems and how do you eliminate real world from math math is everywhere and he's using it he's using a tool that's a perfect example math is black and white he said it himself it's about getting the right answer right so what exactly is in these uh, textbooks that they were perfect for years before and all of a sudden based on this new law, they're no longer uh, good enough or they're inappropriate to teach at our students. This is only hurting them in the long run. They've already missed two years of a good education. And here we are delaying books that are supposed to be going, books that have worked in the past. And here we are, he's he's using our students as pawns and a political just to rile up his base, that's it.
2: And I want to put up a, a thing on the screen here because this is, this is a diagram that I found that actually showcases the frame of the SEL philosophy and part of this chart, I don't know if you can see it talks about aspects of self-management, relationship skills, self-awareness, social awareness, responsible decision making all of these cr- parameters that gets people to critically think and so if you're if you're conflating the issues of say, critical race theory or SEL and saying that, hey, this does not require you to have anything besides a binary discussion about right and wrong, you say that this is having a huge impact on how students are able to learn in other areas as well.
8: Well, of course. I mean, if you can't have social uh, um, lessons about life, how can you talk about what's going on? I mean, are we supposed to just ignore it? If you separate that human connection from the teacher and the student body, then what do they need us for? I mean, obviously it doesn't work if you're just teaching the subject. No, we're more, we're human beings. We need social interaction. And we teach the students, more now more than ever, how to handle that anger, how to handle, I mean, yeah. you and I both know, we've all gone through things. How many people do we know that have died? Um, these students, I have had over a dozen kids in my two years, Baker acted, And here we have a governor using them. It's, that's why it's cruelty, they've gone through enough yeah. And here he is, using him as a political yeah. pawn. Leave him out of this.
2: Octavio, Octavio, I hear you. Thank you so much. We'll be right back.
3: Hello. Владимир Александрович? It's Навальный Алексей, who worries you. I wanted to know, why did you want to kill me? Okay. Yeah.
0: Remarkably, Vladimir Putin faces a legitimate opponent, Alexei Navalny.
3: I don't want Putin being president. If I want to be a leader of a country, I have
0: to organize people. The Kremlin hates Navalny so much that they refuse to say his name. Passengers heard Navalny cry out
3: in agony. Come on, poisoned? Seriously? We are creating a coalition to fight this regime. If you are killed, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? It's very simple. Never give up.
6: Navalny, Sunday at 9 on CNN and streaming on CNN+.
2: Wow, I can't wait to watch Navalny. It's coming up this Sunday at 9 p.m. Jim?
1: It is frightening, but it's inspiring. I was able to meet his wife and daughter. That family is making a brave, brave stand. Thanks so much, Laura. I'll be here in Ukraine tomorrow for CNN Tonight Again. Laura will be reporting from Washington. Meanwhile, Don Lemon, tonight starts
0: right now.